Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by one of the best pitchers of all time. He's a 10-time All-Star, two-time Cy Young Award winner, was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2014. Also a teammate, former teammate of mine. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Glavin. Tommy, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure, Booney. How's everything? Everything's good. Uh, I'm going to go back to off-season of 98. I get phone call. I got traded to the Braves. And I remember thinking, first thing I was thinking was, I don't have to face Glav. Maddox and Smoltz <laughs> for at least a year. And it ended up being yeah. one year. Uh, you know, I remember I was living in Florida at the time. Hershiser was a, was a neighbor of mine. And he said, Hey, Booney, congratulations. You know, you got a chance to go to a world series because back in those days, the nineties, and you had a lot of guys, you had that core group, but you had a guys coming in year in and year out. You had a bunch of different teammates. And it was kind of the thing when you got traded there. Oh, you're probably going to get a chance to go to the World Series, at least the playoffs at worst. I remember that. But then I got to spring training that year. And not only was it was everything I thought it was going to be, but when Bobby introduced the new players and it was myself and it was Brian Jordan, he kind of said, guys, we here in Atlanta, the culture is I put the lineup up, we go out and we we steamroll our opponent, our opponent. And I think that year in 99, we did as well. We won 103, 104 games. I forget what it was. Ended up getting to the World Series. Um, We ended up losing to the Yankees that year. But it was that expect to win culture that, you know, I've been on some great teams in Cincinnati. We had some real good runs. Uh, Seattle in the early 2000s, I was a part of some great teams. But that Atlanta year that I was there, it was a little bit different. It was expected. Uh, Take me through that a little bit. Guy that's that was there for 16 years. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, obviously we uh, burst onto the scene and uh, to the scene. I'm sorry, in uh, 1991. And um, you know, while I, while I think most of us that were there at the time thought, you know, we had a chance to have a pretty good team, um, certainly be a competitive team in '91. Uh, I don't. I don't think any of us thought we were going to win our division. I. You know, we were so bad. Uh, the years before that, I think that we would have been perfectly satisfied with getting to 500 or a little over 500 and being somewhere in the middle of the division in terms of uh, standings. And everything clicked. Um, and it clicked probably two years faster than I think most of us thought it was going to. Uh, and I remember coming back the next year and dealing with what you just talked about, the expectations, uh, because it was one thing to win your division one year, kind of sneak up on everybody. You're kind of the darlings of baseball. And, and let's face it, you know, you, you look at baseball and there's a surprise team every year. Uh, we happen to be the team in 1991, but I remember going to spring training in 92 and all of a sudden there are expectations. Um, it was different. And I think after we did it again in 92, then it kind of became that mentality that you spoke of when you got there in 99. We, we showed up in spring training every year and, and we expected to win. And, and that's just the way that it was. Now, um, I don't think we took those expectations lightly because, you know, as you know, 
I don't care how good your team is, you're one or two injuries away from everything changing. And, and I think we were aware of that. Um, but we went into every year uh, expecting to win and knowing that um, it was, you know, it was what we were supposed to do. So uh, that culture grew pretty significantly, significantly by the time you got there. But um, it was a culture that we embraced. It was a culture that we quite honestly believed in. We just felt like um, after 162 games, we were going to be the one that was standing and we were going to be the team that was in first place. And just nobody was going to be able to knock us off. And for a long time, they didn't. You know, we had Snitker, the current manager for the Braves, on recently, and he talked about that. He grew up in that organization. He's been in that organization in one capacity or another for a lot of years now. It was really cool talking to him because he's come full circle. He's like, Booney, mm -hmm. I was here. I was in the big leagues. I was back in the minor leagues. And and when this recent opportunity for him to to manage the ball club came up, he said – it caught him completely off guard. He was beyond that in his mind that, you know, his time had come and passed and, and lo and behold, it comes back and ends up winning a world series. It seems like that culture's kind of been recreated recently in Atlanta. You're now in the booth with, with the Braves. Uh, do you see that to, to a, to somewhat of a degree of those nineties teams? I do. Um, you know, look, I think um, the, the, the great thing for Snit is, like you said, he he was in the organization for so long. I mean, heck, I played for Snit my first year in pro ball and instructional league back in 1984. So uh, you're right. He's served virtually every role you could ask somebody to serve within an organization. So it was great to see him get that shot. Um, but he, you know, he spent a lot of time with Bobby, um, you know, whether it was as a, a, a coach on Bobby's staffs in the big leagues or around Bobby in spring training. Um, so I think a lot of the, the culture that Bobby, Bobby brought is, is the same culture that Snit grew up under, so to speak. And, and I think Snit brings the same thing, um, you know, going down there doing games and sitting and talking with Snit. Um, I see a lot of the same similarities in Snit that I saw in Bobby. I hear a lot of the same things, uh, from the players about Snit that we all used to say about Bobby. Um, and I think that culture has, has returned. I mean, I think that, I don't know what the number is now, but they've won five or six titles or division titles in a row again. So, um, you know, they have built that expectation again. And, and, you know, you look at that team now uh, coming into this year, I think they're the odds on favorite to win their division again. And certainly a team that uh, a lot of teams look at, or a lot of people look at uh, as a team, uh, that they would pick to win the World Series. So, um, you know, I think Snit's done a great job uh, of coming in there and taking over kind of during the rebuild and now uh, having those pieces to the puzzle, leading them to where they, uh, you know, where they need to go and, and you know, being a perennial contender every year. Uh, for those of you listening to the Boom Podcast, I'm going to, uh, Tommy, it's interesting to me if you remember this, but I'm, uh, I'm going to give them a little insight to that culture in the 90s. And when I came over, so uh, we're sitting, we play the season, uh, we have a great season, we're going to the playoffs. And, and what teams do is at the end of the year, if we're in the playoffs, we have a playoff shares meeting. And I think you were running the meeting mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there with a couple of my new teammates that haven't been in Atlanta a long time. And we're going over it, you know, all right, how much are we voting for this and voting for that? And uh, it seems like we were real lenient with the shares. And I'm sitting there and I think I raised my hand. I said, Glab. I said, what are we going to do? Give the peanut lady a share? And, and I think you kind of told me, hey, Booty, 
this culture in Atlanta, we win every year. So, so we're pretty lenient with our shares. And I, I remember, la- you know, it was all in a light moment. I remember laughing, thinking, well, I haven't been in the playoffs every year. This yeah, is my yeah. second time. And you kind of laughed at me like, yeah, Booney, this is what we do in Atlanta. I thought that was cool. But also, I thought it was just kind of a, you know, some reality of what it had been like for you guys. And it wasn't coming from an arrogant breath. It was kind of, no, this is what we expect to do. And this is pretty much what we've done for the last 10 years. I thought it, I thought it was a pretty cool moment. Yeah, I'm, you know, we. I, I think based on what you say and what I've heard other players say, I think we were on the uh, probably on the more generous side of uh, of awarding shares or portions of shares or or what the case may be. But and that that part of it certainly was the fact that we were going to the playoffs a lot. So, um, you know, it, I, again, like you said, it wasn't like we took it for granted. It wasn't anything like that. It was just that, you know, we knew. um being able to send somebody, you know, a portion of a share, that kind of money that a lot of those people would get was, was a big deal. So, you know, I think we tried to be mindful of everybody who played a role uh, from players to grounds crew people, to people in the, uh, you know, uh, organization that helped us with travel, whatever the case may be. Cause as you know, there are a lot of people that do a lot of things behind the scenes during the course of the year to make a season go smoothly. So I think we always erred on the side of, uh, trying to be a little bit more generous. Um, and, you know, look, I know, again, maybe maybe we would have uh, took home a little bit more here and there, but I, I know that for a lot of those people that ended up getting some of that money uh, over the years, there were a lot of them that reached out and, and, you know, couldn't say enough about how appreciative they were that we even thought of them, let alone, let alone getting some money. This might be old hat for you. I know it is. Uh, but... It's just probably a story of your life. You're going to be linked to to Smoltzy and Doggy uh, for the rest of your life. And, and from a a former teammate of yours, a, fo- a former opponent of yours, uh, I think it's a good thing. You know, a lot of us get asked of off offensive players. You know, they'll come to me at this stage. I'm sure they come to you. Hey, Glav, who are some of the toughest guys for you to get out? Come to mm-hmm. me. Who are some of the best pitchers you ever faced, Booney? And and I've narrowed it down. It's an easy answer. You know, they'll go over Pedro and Roger. And yeah, there were a lot of guys, believe me, out there that, that I had a tough time with. But I've narrowed it down. And it's pretty easy for me to say now. I said, in the 90s, you know, I, the majority of my time in the 90s was with the Reds. I said, Maddox Smoltz 11. I said, this is back when we had USA Today. We didn't have our phones. And believe me, I, I don't think I was alone. But we'd be have that Atlanta trip coming up. And I'm like. And no disrespect to Merker or any of the guys that came and gone, but I'd sit there and I'd open, I'd open that paper up and I have one eye closed. I'm like, who am I getting? You know, and I'd count the days. Like we're going to be there in 12 days. Who do I get? And it seemed like nine times out of 10, it was Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. I'm like, no, I've got, I got to find a way. I mean, it, it was so, you guys were so good at that time. My the best staff I saw definitely in my playing days, uh, and maybe and and one of the best of all time. The thing that was so unique about you guys, you were so different. Doggy was going to go when in doubt. He was going to and sorry for you guys listening. When I, I reference Doggy, that's that's Greg Maddox. That's his nickname. Uh, he was going to go sinker away. He was going to start the ball off the plate, bring it back for a strike when in doubt. And if that worked for him, he wouldn't go away from that. You were going to be a little different. You're going to throw away. You're going to test the edges of that strike zone. If you got somebody to fish, you were going to throw them a strike. And I know that was kind of your 
MO in Atlanta with Leo Mazzoni. Uh, I remember sitting there talking to Leo during the year I played with the Braves. I said, Leo, are you that great of a pitching coach? You know what his answer was. I don't know if you've heard this before. He goes, if you had Maddox, Smoltz, and Glavin, you'd be a genius pitching coach too, Boone. And I laughed at that, but you were also different. Smoltz, was kind of the traditional over-the-top heater, power slider. And But I remember that one year and playing against you. If your opponent would swing at a ball, why throw him a strike? Was that a mm-hmm. big part of your repertoire and your thought process? I know you especially. Uh, and I used to think this later in my career. I'm like, all right, if Glab gets me in a situation where there's runs to, you know, he gets into a little trouble, bases loaded, second and third, he'll walk me before he's going to give up a double. He's not going to throw a – you'll walk somebody with the base loaded before you're going to give up a three-run double. Uh, give me a little little behind the scenes of that. Yeah, look, I mean, I laugh because, you know, like even now when I do games broadcasting and, and you know – whoever I'm working with will say, well, base is loaded. He's got to throw a strike. And no, you know, you don't. I'll, kind of, I'll sarcastically say, no, you don't. I'd rather walk on than give up a grand slam. So, you know, um, that was, that was my mentality. That was the way I had to pitch. I mean, I didn't, you know, I was not a stuff guy. Um, I mean, I was a stuff guy in the sense that you know, obviously I had a, I had an above average changeup that I leaned on a lot and it was because of location and movement uh, that I was able to lean on it, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a guy that was going to rear back and here you go. Here comes a fastball. Uh, I'm going to take my chances. So, you know, that it was just something that I guess I learned through trial and error. Um, you know, I was, I was not that kind of pitcher when I came to the big leagues, I was a fastball curveball guy. Um, didn't throw enough strikes when I got to the big leagues, uh, knew that I had to start throwing more strikes. Um, went through a lot of the growing pains that a lot of guys do. I had a bad year. My, my first year in the big leagues, I lost 17 games, came back the next year, had a good year. And then my third year was average. So I was struggling to find that consistency that so many guys struggle to find. And it wasn't until I developed my changeup um, in 91 that I took off. And, and that became the difference maker for me. And it was it really was the thing that that allowed me to stay in games when I didn't have my best stuff. You know, up up to that point in time, if I had my A game, then I had my A game. And I'm not saying I was going to win, but I was going to pitch a good game. I was going to have a chance to win. Uh, B game, C game, I had no chance. Um, and once I learned that change up and learned how to lean on it, um, that gave me the ability to win games when I had my B stuff or even my C stuff. It, it, it helped me to stay in there. Um, so that was that was a big part of it. And then, you know, just learning how to throw more strikes and then learning how to expand the strike zone. Um, you know, you know, when, when, when you came into the league, we played together, it was, it was an East and West strike zone, uh, at least in the national league, uh, belt. high was a ball. Uh, you had some leeway off the corners. Um, and you know, I think I, my mentality, you know, I, I, I kind of developed my style of pitching to through two things. Number one, when Leo came in, um, it was, he really put an emphasis on commanding your fastball and in particular, the down and away fastball. You know, I used to sit on the bench and talk to hitters all the time, pick their brain. I remember sitting on the bench one day with, with Jeff Blauser and we were talking about pitching and hitting and, and, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, we're, we're, we're being preached to and talked to and practicing, you know, the down and away strike. I said, you know, as a hitter, what's that pitch? What's that pitch like to hit? And I, I never forgot what he said. He said, "Well, Glavis, the 
just the, the equivalent of having perfect mechanics when you throw a pitch. In order for a hitter to hit that pitch, you got to have perfect, perfect mechanics. And even if you do, you still may not hit it hard. Uh, and, and that stuck with me. And I thought, okay, well, if that's the case, I'm going to learn how to do that because I'm going to learn, I'm going to try and make you get three hits to score a run off me, not one, not one that's going to end up in the seats or one that's going to end up in a gap. Now, obviously it's not to say that you never made those mistakes, but that was kind of my mentality. And, and I, I got to the point where I got good enough at it that then you learn how to expand the strike zone, you know, and, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I didn't get pitches off the outside corner. Of course I did. Um, you know, I didn't get as many on the inner part portion of the plate cause I didn't go in there as much, but I was okay with that. But I think it was the kind of thing that for me anyway, was all right, if I'm going to learn how to throw this pitch and now I want to learn how to expand off the plate to get somebody to swing at a ball that looks like a strike, but it's not in the zone. Um, you know, that kind of thing Then I need to start to practice that, learn how to do that. And, and, and I think the, the side effect of that was, you know, when you're, when you're working on one side of the plate like that all the time, like I did, and your catcher setting up at a, as a strike and you're hitting the mitt, you're hitting the mitt, you're hitting the mitt. And now all of a sudden he sets up two, three, four inches off the plate and you hit the mitt. Well, that's what the umpire sees. You know, and, and you make it, if you do it often enough, my mentality was if I'm doing it often enough, I'm going to make it hard for that umpire not to call a strike, you know, because if he's seeing me hitting the mid all the time, then, you know, if I'm two inches off the plate, it's going to make it hard for him to call, not call that pitch. So that was kind of what I tried to do. And then again, my mentality was always, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and make you beat me with my pitch or a pitch that I'm trying to execute, not hey, I can't afford to walk you, so here's a, a pitch right down the middle. You know, like you said, I'd, I'd rather walk you than give up a, a bases-loaded double. So, you know, that was you know, that was just my mentality. I just never gave in because I never felt like I had the stuff to give in, you know. And, and, and then secondarily, I guess I was just stubborn enough that, you know, whatever pitch I was trying to make, I thought I could make it. And if I didn't, then okay, I'll try to make it on my next one. And, and I think it served me – uh, it served me well more times than not. I think you bring up a great point. And, uh, you know, I laugh at, at the people th that have never been in the box telling me that, oh, Maddox and Glavin would get pitches off the plate. And I think about it rationally. I think, do you think umpires who have a lot of pride in what they do? Because there was a lot of buzz of, of that in that in that time where, yeah, Maddox and Glavin, oh, they give them they give them off the plate. And, and I thought to myself, rationally, do you think an umpire went into a game thinking, whom hmm, it's Tommy who's won two Cy Young Awards, Doggy, I don't know how many he's won. Uh, we're going to give him off the plate today. If anything, the pride factor would take over and say, hey, I'm going to really bear down and make sure I call a fair strike zone. I think what people don't put into the equation is because of the – First of all, because you you were so uh, efficient at hitting your spots, uh, it makes it a little bit easier for an umpire. He knows what it's going to be in this particular zone. But as a hitter, I would it, the illusion of your pitch, your changeup, especially Maddox's two seamer that would come back seem like out of his hand. I'd give up on it, and the next thing you know, it in front of my eyes, it went zip, and it was a strike. Now, sometimes I'd go check the tape and it was just off the plate. But my eyes, it was almost the illusion that it was a strike. And that's why the umpire called it. So mm -hmm. I, I don't like to defend pitchers because I don't like you. But 
I'm t- I've got to be honest. There were certain guys in the league that were just different. They gave the illusion of a strike, even though it might have been a ball, ball and a half off the plate. And uh, so I don't think it was a real fair compare. I, I I laugh at people still to this day. Oh, well, they gave them off the plate. Oh, yeah, that's what the umpire want to do. Going into the game going, I want to give these guys off the plate. So I just feed that narrative. Uh, but but I think it was more attributed to the efficiency of your pitches versus an umpire just in your, you know, in in on the in on the plot with with Tom Glavin. Well, you know, I think, again, it, it was it was a little bit more a part of the gamesmanship back then. Right. I think in today's game with Quest Tech and um, umpires being graded on that system and the whole nine yards, there's a little bit less of that gamesmanship, I think, that goes on in the game, right? And and again, to my point, if if I'm going to have my catcher set up on the outside corner for a strike and I'm constantly hitting that spot, well, when there's one that's there and it's maybe a ball off the plate, well, of course your umpire's going to lean towards a strike because he's seen so many strikes out there to begin with, right? It's not like I'm trying to throw one on the outside corner and I throw it on the inside corner. That that pitch isn't going to get called. But if you're constantly in your zone and, and around where you're trying to be, then, you know, you're going to get the benefit of some calls uh, if, if you're around there enough, right? And and I think it went both ways. I, mean, I remember in my that my first year in the big leagues, or maybe it was my second year, my first three starts of the year were against like reigning Cy Young award winners. I had Hershiser, I had Fernando Valenzuela, and I had, I had doctorate. And, and I remember after like the third time facing one of those guys, I was getting frustrated with my strike zone and seeing what they were calling for those guys. And I remember going back to the bench, you know, kind of being frustrated a little bit. And I remember Rick Mailer, uh teammate at the time sitting there next to me on the bench. And he said, listen, you got to earn that. You got to earn that strike zone. And there's truth in that, right? You're not going to, you can't expect to go out there as a, as a young pitcher, so to speak, and have the same strike zone as a veteran, right? And, and you can't go out there as a guy who throws the ball kind of all over the place and then have a borderline pitch and get, expect to get that pitch called. So I think when you, when you establish yourself as being around the strike zone all the time, then yeah, you're going to get the benefit of some calls here and there, just like good hitters got the benefit of, of the strike zone, right? I mean, if a Tony Gwynn, is standing in the batter's box and there's a borderline pitch that he doesn't swing at nine times out of the 10, the umpire is going to go, well, if he didn't swing, it must've been a ball, you know, cause he had that kind of respect and he had that kind of command of the strike zone. So, you know, it, it went both ways. You knew there were certain hitters that when they got in the batter's box that you weren't going to get the benefit of some of those borderline calls and okay, fine. You dealt with it. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's, Sometimes, you know, it's almost like people are suggesting that, you know, well, I had a different strike zone or Greg had a different strike zone. No, it wasn't a different strike zone. It's just that we were more consistent within what we were doing that allowed us to expand our strike zone more so, like I said, and like you said, than a guy who's, you know, kind of hitting his spots every once in a while and then throws one borderline he expects to get it. Well, if you're not around your your spots all the time, you're not going to get the benefit of, of as many of those calls. No, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, people forget when they're watching the game, the human element and the umpire. I, I remember as a young player, uh, 1992, when I came up, I mean, that strike zone was five feet wide, you know, and, and you earn your stripes a little bit later in my career. It was a different ball game. But all I asked from umpires, I, I always thought, well, these guys are human beings. It's a tough job calling a big league game. And all I ask is establish your strike zone early 
and stick with it. If you're going to be given that, that pitch off the plate or a little doubt, you better not give it on the inside corner. As mm-hmm. long as you, I found that the best umpires weren't a human computer, like the square we have today that you watch every day. I don't know about you. drives me nuts. I throw stuff on the TV uh, because <laughs> it's in a, it, first of all, it's inaccurate. It's not what the umpires train on. Um, but as long as they established their zone, I knew what it was. You know, it, my first at bat, I made, hey, what are we doing? Is that is that as far as we're going? Yeah, Booney, that's it. Okay, the good ones would stick with that. So I know uh, late in the game, tight situation. I know that, hey, I got to be a little, I got to expand my zone a little bit on that pitch because that's a strike. That was fair to me. That's all I need to know as a hitter. I'm sure for you as a pitcher, same thing. I watched the strike zone today and that square. Now, everybody at home is an expert. Oh, how can you call that a strike? Well, there's so many variables with the, with the velocity, with the, uh, the movement of the pitch. And when we see where that little track master and you see it on a daily basis, sometimes that drives you crazy because it, it really is tough. And, and a lot of times just because the ball shows up and it's a centimeter outside of that little box, me and you know, as hitter and pitcher, that's not the true tale as a broadcaster watching this, what goes through your mind when you see it consistently and you hear people bitching both sides? Well, I mean, I think for me, I, I kind of go back to my pitcher's mentality. Right. And, and, and I share, you know, a lot of your, a lot of your same sentiments when it comes to that. Right. And, and, and I, and I think a hitter would too, like if I'm watching a catcher set up on the outside corner or, the, or a corner in general, and that pitcher throws a pitch that's maybe a ball off, I'd much rather, and I would think a hitter would too, I'd much rather see that pitch called a strike than when he's trying to throw it to a corner and he throws it belt, you know, a little bit above belt high on the other side of the, the other side of the strike zone. Like, okay, technically that pitch is in the box, but that's nowhere close to what he was trying to do, right? So why, why are you <laughs> rewarding him for a pitch that he had no intentions of making? And that's where I think it drives me crazy is that if a guy's trying to make a pitch and, you know, that ball skirts that line on the strike zone and it gets called a ball, I'm like, man, that was a really well-executed pitch. You know, I would, I, as a pitcher, I would want that pitch versus, again, the fastball that I'm trying to throw down and away and I throw on the, you know, just above belt high in the inside corner. Yeah, I know that's a strike, but I wasn't trying to do that. Or the hanging breaking ball, right? That The hanging breaking ball that in our day – it's coming out of your hand and you're like, Oh God. And in today's game, it's a called strike, you know, it, it's, so that's where it drives me a little bit crazy, but I agree with you. I mean, umpires are, they're human beings, right? And, and again, if, if a guy's around the strike zone, then, then, you know, you'll see more of those borderline pitches called. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's been hard for me based on the way I pitched based on the way our game was when we played, you know, it's just so hard for me to still buy into watching guys pitching on the upper portion of the strike zone, you know, uh, especially when you have guys that have very little fastball command and they're trying to pitch with their fastball above the belt. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, here's a guy. Yeah, I know he throws 95, but everybody does. Right. And he doesn't have much command. And we're trying to have him pitch to a portion of the strike zone where there's little to no margin for error. 
There's just no room. You know, you you get that ball, you know, maybe two balls above the belt, you get a swing and a miss. You get that ball, a ball lower, that ball is going 450 feet, you know, and it's, you know, it just seems like a much harder way to pitch than, again, what I tried to do, which was, you know, pitch on the outside corner. And if I missed off the plate, all right, I'm either going to get, it's either going to be a ball or if somebody wants to go ahead and chase that pitch, they're not going to hit it very hard. So either way, I'm okay versus, man, I'm flirting with danger every time I throw that fastball middle middle to middle up uh and and really trying to bank on my stuff to get help me get away with it if i make a mistake it's just it's that's probably the hard part for me to watch uh in today's game because a i can't relate to it with stuff um but b i just can't relate to it in terms of an execution standpoint like i just see so many (laughs) so many hazards so to speak trying to pitch above the belt it cracks me up too in our day we didn't have that 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 feed in the dugout, you know, as hitters, we had to go down into the video room and check out. Now they've got it in the dugout. And I see people arguing, you know, that it'll, it'll be just off the box. And and I'll yell at Aaron, my brother, once in a while, I said, quit, quit bitching and moaning about all the balls and strikes just right. because you got that monitor. Now, you know, it's different. Uh, it's, it's just a different world than, than, than when we were playing. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You worked at a pretty good pace as a pitcher. First first two weeks of the season, pitch clock. Now, as a defender, uh, I love the staff that work quick. You know, it keeps mm-hmm. me on my toes. The guys that took a little bit longer, you know, I realized that was their style and that's what made them who they were. So you've got to work with that and, and keep yourself in the game. I, I love guys that work fast. Man, I want to get on the field, get off the field. What you've seen in the, in the first couple weeks of the 2023 with a pitch clock, I, I never thought we'd see a pitch clock in baseball. Uh, now on the media side, I like it because if I DVR a game, it doesn't take me as long to get through it because we are, you know, it's noticeably quicker. Mm-hmm. In the booth, you're noticing man, we're out of there in two and a half hours. So that's great uh, for what we're doing. How would that affected you, uh, this pitch clock? Do you think it's putting a lot of tension on staffs? Um, you know, I I don't know that it would have affected me much for the most part. You know, I I think I, you know, because people have asked me and I'm like, well, with nobody on base, I'm going to ask you, why can't you get a a pitch within 15 seconds? Why do you, why do you need a clock to make you do that? Right. Well, what are you doing? Um, you know, now having said that, I like to work fast and it was easy to work fast when you were pitching well. When you weren't pitching well, it gets a little bit harder, you know, because I'll be the first to admit if, if if I'm on my game, yeah, it's pretty much give me the ball. Let me get on the mound. Let me throw my next pitch. If I'm trying to find something, there might be a little bit more. Give me the ball. I'm going to take a walk around the mound. I'm going to come up from the backside of the mound. And the whole time I'm doing that, my wheels are turning. Like I'm trying to feel something. I'm trying to find something. I'm trying to figure something out. So I could see in some games where if you're scuffling a little bit and trying to find something, that 15 second clock might have come into play a little bit. I still think I would have been well within it, but there might have been a time or two where it it may have crept up on me. Now with runners on base, 
you know, again, I don't think it would have been a huge problem, but I think what's going to be interesting to watch and, you know, I, I can't really say just yet that I've seen much of it. Um, but I think what's going to be interesting to watch is the younger pitchers and some of the veteran guys, but mostly the younger pitchers, uh, when they start to get guys on base and the game's starting to get away from a little bit, you know, because I know for me and, and virtually every pitcher that's played in the big leagues, when you get to the big leagues and, you know, you're, you're finding your way and you're doing your thing somewhere, sometime relatively quickly that you've been in the big leagues, you're going to have a veteran pitcher come over to you and you're going to have a conversation about runners on base. And how when the game starts to get going like that and you're getting into trouble, you need to slow the game down. You need to process it slower in your brain. You need to just let everything kind of slow down a little bit. And that's very helpful. And it was very helpful for me as a young pitcher and, and something that I carried with me all the way through my career. Now, I don't know how hard it's going to be for guys to do that knowing they got a pitch clock bearing down on them. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see as we get going more and more, when guys get into trouble, how they handle that, how they slow the game down in their mind. Uh, because that, you know, you gen generally speaking, you start in those situations and it happens to veteran guys too. Your wheels are spinning. You're trying to find something. You're trying to get through this jam. You're trying whatever. And if you're trying to hurry up and get on the mound to make a pitch, you might make a bad decision or a bunch of bad decisions. So I think that's the one area that I don't love it. Um, that I I'm interested to see how guys handle it, but I mean, I'm with you, you know, it's like you're watching a game and, you know, I'm not going to sit here and I say I watch very many games from start to finish. I'll flip around and watch some other things on TV. But it's like, you know, you watch the three innings of a game and then you go watch something else for what seems like a little while. And when you last year, you'd come back and it was the fifth inning. Now it's like the bottom of the sixth. And you're like, yeah. Whoa, where, <laughs> where did the game go? You know, so I, I do look, I, I don't love the pitch clock per se. Um, I'm probably a little bit more of a purist um, or something pure about our game being the only game that didn't have a, a, a time associated to it, so to speak. But I do think it's made it a better product. It's crisper. There's way less dead time, which makes it feel like there's more stuff going on, even if there's not sometimes. Um, but I, I think baseball needed it. Games were going way too long, and, and you were losing people's interest way too much. No, I agree with you. At first, I'm I'm like you. I'm a purist, and I thought, no, don't be changing my game. You're always trying to mix right. it up. Uh, but early on, I'm thinking it is swifter. It is better. And the bottom line, it comes down to do the fans like it because that's mm -hmm. what it's about. Those are the guys buying the tickets. They're the guys buying the package to, to watch every game on TV every day. And if they like it, well, then that's what we're going to do. I, I think there are, are going to have to be tweaks. You know, I think you mentioned uh, games when you weren't didn't have your your a game. And you, once in a while you needed a breather playing second base. That's a time I'd come to the mound. And, and I'm not necessarily going to say, hey, Tommy, what do we got here? How you feel it? It's more of I know Glav needs a break right now and he just needs to kind of yeah. step off and relax. You can't do that anymore. And mm -hmm. that's the one thing to me. We get late in the season or a playoff type scenario. It's the eighth inning. Base is loaded. That pitcher went, now this is a big pitch coming up, and I got to deliver this pitch even if I'm not ready. I can't get in sync with my catcher. You know, there's no there's no timeouts anymore. So I think as time goes on, I think there's got to be some tweaks to it. I don't know what those tweaks are. I think it'll work out with the season. But I think a fan, whether it's your team or or it's the team you're you're got you're playing, nobody wants to see the game ended on a ball four 
or or on a strike three. I, I don't think anybody wants to see that. No, and I've said that too. I've said, you know, I think everybody's going to love the pitch clock from the standpoint of the Christmas of the crispness of the game and, and the lack of dead time and all that stuff that I think used to drive people crazy. But the minute their team loses a game because of a click pitch clock violation, they're going to be livid. They're going to go crazy. Uh, and it's going to happen, right? And, and I think to your point, it's going to be interesting to see, particularly as we get into September and playoff runs and pennant races and then into the postseason, you know, w- what adjustments, if any, you know, baseball makes for those reasons, right? You don't, you don't want to start seeing playoff games de- decided by pitch clock violations. So my hunch is I think the umpire is going to be a little bit more tolerant on when they start the clock, uh, giving some guys a little bit more time, be a little bit more lenient with, um, you know, some of those things that maybe start the clock over or don't start the clock so quickly. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's going to, there's going to be a feeling out process, right? And And I can't, I can't imagine that baseball is going to be as stringent or as strict with it as they are right now come postseason, right? I mean, every other sport you watch, um, you know, you watch hockey, basketball, football, those games are are officiated much more differently in the postseason, right? They're, they let guys play, so to speak, right? They're not so uh, stringent or strict on calling penalties in hockey or fouls in basketball and, and, you know, football, they may be a little more clutching and grabbing and letting guys play baseball. I think that's the one area where playoff baseball, it's going to, there's going to have to be uh, a feeling out process um, because, you know, I think baseball has to be sensitive and I think they are, I think they know this. Uh, they may not have the answer to how it's going to play out, but, they know how how important those games are, obviously, how much stress guys are under during those games and in those confrontations and, and all those things. And uh, and I think they're going to be mindful of that. But I think most importantly, they're going to be mindful of the last thing they want is having a playoff game or a pennant race decided on a pitch clock violation. No, nobody wants that. And, and Major League Baseball doesn't want it either. Uh, so I, I think we'll see some leniency as we get into the uh, latter part of the, the the more important part of the season, so to speak. You mentioned hockey. I'm going to remind everybody out there listening to the Boone podcast of Tom's hockey prowess. 1984, mm-hmm. uh, second round pick of the Braves, fourth round pick of the LA Kings. Um, do you ever give it serious thought? Obviously, you're a fourth <laughs> round fourth round pick. You're pretty good. I mean, I gave it serious thought from the standpoint of college. Um, you know, hockey's different in that you, you get drafted in hockey and they own your rights for five years. Uh, baseball, you know, they, you, they draft you and you got to sign by the next, the start of the next school year. So there's, you know, there's much more urgency to sign a second round pick in baseball than there is a fourth round pick in hockey. Um, you know, my, my conversation when the Kings drafted me was, Hey, you know, we picked you in the fourth round. We know where you're going to college. We'll watch you over the next couple of years. We'll talk to you after your junior year and see where things are at. And that, and that was it. You know, the Braves, hey, we drafted you in the second round. We're going to be at your house tomorrow. We, we want to try and sign you. So, you know, it, it, it was more, you know, I had a, I had a college scholarship uh, to go ba- play baseball and hockey. And, and, you know, I knew the importance of that scholarship from my dad. Um, you know, it, it, it was not, a, um, not something that I, that I dismissed any way, shape, or form. I mean, that, that's college. It, my dad wouldn't have had to pay for it. So I, I you know, I wanted to take that seriously. Um, but I think once, once the Braves really came after me, um, 
and and essentially back in those days gave me first round signing bonus. Um, you know, I knew I had the money that if baseball didn't work out, you know, whether it be my signing bonus or the, you know, the, the college, um, fund situation that, that, uh, you had as a, as a player, when you signed, I knew there was, I know there was an avenue for me to, to pay for college if baseball didn't work out. So, you know, taking that burden away from my dad was important for me. And, and that's really what it came down to. Um, you know, I loved hockey. I was probably at that stage of the game. I was a more polished hockey player than I was a baseball player. I mean, I, you know, as a pitcher, I had a good arm and, and that's what I got drafted on. I didn't know how to pitch. I mean, I, my, my idea of a changeup as a high school pitcher was, all right, well, I'll try to throw this next one harder than I threw the last one. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but in hockey, I, I was, I was a much more polished. I was a, a more all around better hockey player, but you know, Back in those days, you go over the pros and the cons, you know, back in 1984, there weren't guys playing into their late thirties in hockey. Um, there weren't guys making a lot of money like they are in hockey nowadays. So, you know, everything kind of leaned towards baseball in terms of money and length of career and all those things. Um, but I just felt being a left-handed pitcher, I had an advantage in baseball that I didn't have in hockey. Uh, and I just thought it would be foolish not to try and use that. I'm going to give you a scenario. Uh, you're in the booth. You get a call from TSN Canada. <laughs> they need you to fill in. So you're going to go from the broadcast booth of the Braves. You've got to call an NHL playoff game. Could you do it? I couldn't. I certainly couldn't be a play-by-play guy. Um, I probably could do enough to be an analyst. I think I know the game well enough. Um you know, but again, today's games change too. Uh, today's hockey game. I mean, um, you know, there's, um, I think the, the basics of the game are the same, but, um, you know, there are some new strategies, some new things you, you see and you look at in, in games more so than when I played or, or even over the last five to 10 years watching hockey games, but I could, I could probably fake my way through it. Yes. I loved hockey as a kid, Tommy. I never played organized though. I was more of the it snowed. We uh -huh. shoveled the snow off the lake and we <laughs> yeah. skate. Yeah. But I loved it. And and I could still skate. So my kids will see me skate. When did you learn to skate? Now yeah. I'm not a great skater, but I could I could physically go out there. Ten All Stars, 1995. You're the you're the MVP of the World Series. Uh, you won the the wins title five times. NL. Uh, that's back when it meant something, and it meant something to go late in the game as a starter. Now, nowadays, it seems like it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I see it early in games. You know, they don't get through the fifth because you got to get through the fifth uh, mm -hmm. to be it to, to be in your counter, you know, your corner to win a game. How important was that to you? Because as as offensive players, we not only look at your ERA and what you've done lately. When I'm coming to get a, try to get a scouting report on how Tommy Glavin's been pitching lately, I want to know what you've been doing lately. But I'm going to look at the wins and I'm going to look at the ERA. I don't think the players look at the wins anymore. It's like, whatever, how important was it? And how much uh, did those, how important was that for you to win for, from a personal standpoint? Like, yeah, I, I won 20 games this year. I won 22. I won 21. I mean, it was, it was everything, right? I mean, that's what you got judged on as a starting pitcher. Yeah. You got judged on how many games you win. Right. I mean, that, that was kind of the end all be all, um, you know, today obviously wins, you know, they're, they're trying to find ways statistically to quantify 
um, what wins would mean for starting pitchers in today's game because they don't get into games deep enough to win games anymore. Uh, a lot of times they're not getting through five innings. Uh, a lot of times they're not staying in a game, in a tie game, uh, in the sixth inning or the seventh inning and picking up a win late like we would do a lot of times. Um, you know, you win a handful of games in the seventh inning or the eighth inning. Uh, you know, you're not you're not coming out of every game with the lead in the fifth inning, and that's how you win. You know, you win some games late, and if you're not getting that that opportunity, then there's a lot of those chances that you lose to go out there and win. And and you know, I think for us, look, it was we took a ton of pride in going out there and pitching when it was our turn to pitch. You know, our 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 thing was look, every five days we're getting the ball and we're going out there. And that's not to say that. Every time I went out there, I was 100%. Of course I wasn't, right? I mean, I hear guys today talk about, well, you know, I'm not going to go out there if I'm not 100%. And I laugh because I think, you know what? After my first game in spring training, I'm not 100%. Something hurts. There's, there's something that doesn't feel right. And you have to distinguish between truly being hurt and just not feeling good. And, and I think for a lot of guys, um, you don't feel good, you don't pitch. And we didn't do that. You know, we took the ball. And, and you know, if it meant – getting a cortisone shot or doing whatever we had to do to get out there in five days. And that's what we did because we took a ton of pride in it. And, you know, I know for me, I felt like, look, if I can go out there at 80%, I've got as good a chance to win as that guy that I'm going to face most of the time. Now, every now and then, obviously you're going to face a, another guy that's a, you know, a Randy Johnson or somebody like that, where it's like, well, maybe not so much today, but I'm still going to give it a shot. But most of the time, all right, I'm going to take my chances at 80% against their fourth starter at hundred percent. Um, so it was hugely important to go out there and, and take the ball every fifth day. And, and, you know, you, you try to pitch as deep in the game as you could. I think for us, it was, it was always at least seven innings. Um, there were times where you knew your bullpen was taxed and maybe you needed to try and find a way somehow to get more than that. Um, yeah, I don't fault today's guys because it's, it's the, it's the product of the environment they're being brought up in. Right. I mean, I, I look at my generation and yeah, we all pitched. 36 starts a year and we went 220 250 innings and all that stuff and compared to today's guys that looks like herculean right well you go talk to nolan ryan or fergie jenkins or some of those guys and they look at our generation like we were soft right those guys were going out there 40 times a year they were pitching 300 something innings a year they were you know they started a game they ended a game and and that was it so i i, I think you're to some degree, you're a product of the environment you're brought up in, right? And in today's game, you know, these guys don't pitch deep into the game a lot of times because they, they just aren't allowed to, right? It, it's up. Oh, you went through the lineup two times. We got to take you out. <laughs> and it's like, well, what do you mean you got to take me out, right? I mean, I'm never going to learn how to flip a lineup for the third time if you never let me, right? And, and you know, it's, it's similar to like the pitch count, right? I mean, even when I was coming up into the big leagues shortly after I got there, you know, the pitch count became a little bit more prevalent. And, you know, these guys in the minor leagues would be on such strict pitch counts. Then they'd get to the big leagues, you know, and they'd get into the fifth inning and then things would fall apart or they'd get around 90 pitches and things would fall apart. And it's like, well, if they're in the minor leagues, game's over, they're done, they're out. They don't know how to pitch when they get to this stage of the game. They don't know how to pitch when they're starting to get tired. They don't know how to pitch when they're flipping the lineup for the fourth time. They don't know how to, you know, so it's like, all those things that you have to learn how to do, today's guys aren't being allowed to learn how to do it, right? And, and you know, you look at a, a guys today and it's like, well, you know, you can't flip the lineup for the third time. And it's like, well, why? I can't, I can't get a guy out three times in one game. 
You know, I can't get a guy out differently three times in one game, right? It's like, again, I look at some of the, some of the, again, some of the stuff that drives me crazy watching games today. You can watch a pitcher in the first inning face the top three hitters in the lineup, and there is no doubt in your mind how it is that they're trying to get him up. You've seen it right there. Everything game on right there first time, right? Whereas for us, I might think I can get you out, Booney, some, somehow. Like if, if I got a runner on second base and it's a tie game late, here's how I know I can get him out. I'm not trying to get you out like that in the first inning. I'm not, I'm not showing right, that. Right, right. That's runner that on third, my, less you know, than two outs. Yeah, yeah, I'm putting that in my back pocket. Now, you might get me for a base hit in the first inning, or you might even get me for a solo home run in the first inning. But I'm holding on to how I really think I can get you out until I really need it. Yeah. And I don't see that in today's game, right? I see guys go after a hitter exactly how they think they, they're they going to try to attack him the whole game. And for them, okay, well, that's two times, right? I see guys in today's game – Again, it's very apparent what they're trying to do and what the hitter's weakness is because that's what they're trying to attack. We never attack the hitter's weakness for the most part. We pitch to our strengths. You know, Again, like you talked about earlier, you're coming into a series and you want to know, okay, how many games has he won? What's his ERA? What's he doing? Whatever. You know, I would listen to scouting reports and I, you know, I would pay attention. I would listen a little bit. But I, you know what? I really wanted to know who's hot, who's not. I want to know who's going to chase, who's going to chase with two strikes, who's going to, you know, who's going to chase the minute they get in the batter's box. Like to me, that guy that's a red flag, the minute you get in the box, you're a first pitch swinger. Okay, well, you're not going to get my strike one changeup. You're going to get my strike three changeup, you know, because I know you're swinging. So, you know, those are the things I wanted to know. I didn't know want to know if a guy wasn't a good curveball hitter or he couldn't hit this or he couldn't because it may not match up to what I did, Right. I'm going to go out there and pitch my game and pitch to my strengths. And if you show me you can beat me at that, okay, then I'm going to start making some adjustments. Very seldom would I, if a guy was a bad curveball hitter, well, I don't throw a lot of curveballs. I'm not, I'm not going to just start throwing curveballs because he's a bad curveball hitter. That's like my fourth pitch. Why am I going to start doing that? Or a guy has a really hard time handling fastballs above the belt over the middle of the plate. Well, guess what? I have a really hard time throwing that pitch. So I'm not going to throw it. So but I see a lot of that in today's game where here's a hitter's weaknesses and we're going to attack that, even though it may not line up with what a pitcher does well. Um, so I think all those things are things that, you know, guys in today's game are just, you know, it's kind of a product of what they're being told and how they're being told to go about pitching and attacking people. And, and look, I think they know it, right. They know, Hey, if, if I go out there and I flip the lineup three times, maybe, or most of the time I flipped it twice and I got through five innings. That's a great game. I had a great game, you know, and it's just a different, it's a different mentality than when we played, you know, like, like I said, for us, it was for the most part, come hell or high water. I wanted to get through the seventh inning. You know, I, I, if I left my bullpen with six outs to get, I felt okay because you know, you're giving it to your setup guy and your closer. If I came out after six and I had to, I had to have the bullpen get me nine outs. That was a whole lot different. Um, and, and it's just, you know, it's a different mentality, right? I mean, and today, like I've, I've said it so many times as a broadcaster, some of these teams, like it's hard to, it's hard to fault a manager to come out and get his guy after five innings when he's got this lefty coming in, that's throwing 95, that righty coming in, throwing a hundred and two more guys behind him doing the same thing. When you got those kind of toys to play with, 
it makes it kind of hard to have your starting pitcher that's throwing 92, 93, go out and flip a lineup for the third or fourth time. I, there's so much good stuff in there, and that's the part of the game I love. It's elite thinking. And and later, it, it took me a while, but later in my career, into the 2000s, I got to Seattle. I got with Edgar Martinez and and really broke down how we approach, how we hit. I became a different hitter. But it's all those things you were talking about. I know if I've got a Glavin on the mound. I know if i got a Maddox. These guys think differently than your average run-of-the-mill starter. Uh, and, and, oh, the cat and mouse, and, and it used to be, as hitters, we used to make fun of it. It was a five and dive. Now it's five is you're a star. I still think <laughs> yeah. I still think the elite elite guys have the mindset that you had. If I got to go at least seven, uh, they don't always get to, but they have that mindset. Whereas I think the kids coming up today, because of the culture, and as you as you pointed out, not their fault. They're taught that way. We expect you to go five innings as a starting pitcher, and we're going to get you're going to make twenty million dollars if you're successful. Well, okay, this is what they told me. So I don't fault them, but it is that elite thinking of I'm not going to give you my best stuff in the first inning. Nobody on, nobody out, nobody on, two outs, take your base hit. Late in the game, when I when I've got when there's ducks out on the pond, that's where I'm going to go to the real stuff that I need to get you out with. And you see it with elite pitchers. I saw it uh, throughout my career. It's really cool, and I and you know I wish we had more time to talk about it. I think this is something great that fans don't get to hear, but it is that thought process. I watched Manny Ramirez as a hitter uh, when I was back in the American League, and it cracked me up. The swings he would take, and I would go to my pitchers, and I'd say, "Listen, I know you've struck him out twice on that pitch." In the eighth inning, when the game's on the line, do not go there because yeah. he's sitting on your neck. He's like you in reverse. He's waiting for that big moment to think that you've got him and now you don't yeah. have him. But I think that's that's what's awesome about the game of baseball. A uh, little more time and I'll let you get out of here. I know you got to go. Um, you were in Atlanta for 16 years. You ended up coming back in 2008. Um, but you go to the Mets. That's got to be, you know, for a guy like myself who, you know, I was in Cincinnati for five years. I was in Seattle for parts of seven. I, I went to Atlanta. I went to San Diego. I was at different places. For you, growing up in the Atlanta Braves organization, going through 16 years, and then all of a sudden you're going to New York, had to be a, a, a shock for you. That's all you ever knew. And not necessarily uh, – the shock so much is all that experience, all those divisions you'd won, uh, all your accolades at that point. When you went to New York, what did you take to New York? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, look, it was tough. Um, it had to know, be it surreal. Those, it was. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure how long it took to really sink in that that it had happened, uh, but it took a while. Um, you know, because for obvious reasons, right? I mean, 16 years in Atlanta, um, free agent for the first time. I knew I was going to have to go through the song and dance, but I, you know, I firmly believe that at the end of the day, I'd go through the song and the dance, and I'd end up in a Braves uniform, and and it just didn't work out. And when it didn't, um, and I went to New York, yeah, I, I mean, I woke up the next day with, I don't want to say buyer's remorse, but I woke up with like, oh my God, what happened? You know, what what I'm a Met that's my career now. 
Um, so it was tough. Um, you know, and, and look, going to going to New York is not an easy thing to do for anybody. Um, going to New York as a, you know, highly touted, highly paid free agent, um, even tougher. And, you know, I didn't I didn't have a good year my first year. It, it you know, there's a lot of things to get used to, um, you know, crowds, um, media, you know, all that stuff was just way different than anything that I dealt with in Atlanta. Um, you know, and, and it was tough. Now, what, what did I, what did I bring with me? I think I, I, again, I think I brought a culture of winning, right. I mean, even, even though I was not having the greatest of years, you know, I tried to lead by example. I tried to go about my business the right way. I tried to set an example in terms of this is what it takes to be successful, not only, you know, as an individual, but as a team. And, and these are some of the things we need to do. And, um, you know, over the course of my time there, we got better. We won a division, almost went to the World Series. Um, and it ended up being a really, you know, a really positive experience for me to go there. And, and I've said it, um, you know, I think every player should play should play one year in New York because uh, there's nothing like it. I don't I don't I don't care where you've played. Uh, there's nothing like it. And, and people ask me all the time, you know, what was it like to play there? And my standard shortest, easiest and I think most truthful answer is, well, let me tell you this, there's no place better when it's going good and there's no place worse when it's not. So you better figure out a way to be on the plus side of that uh, more times than you're not. And, you know, my first year, I was not. I wore it there my first year uh, and then it got better and, and you know, things were good. But, you know, the, the fan base up there was phenomenal. They've supported that team unbelievably. Uh, the city, if you were a good team, couldn't do enough for you. Um, so it was, it was positive. Now it was tough being away from home. I mean, my, my kids were still young. Um, so, you know, I was essentially away for nine months out of the year and my kids were still in Atlanta going to school. They'd come up on weekends or, you know, during the summer and all that stuff, but it, it was hard. It was a big adjustment emotionally, but, um, you know, like I said, something by the end of it, I look back at it now and it was five years and I was like, man, those five years actually went by pretty fast. Uh, and it was a good experience. I made a lot of really good friends. Um, some of my, you know, better baseball friends to this day, some of those Mets guys and, uh, you know, it was a positive experience and like I said, a ton of fun, but you know, um, I'd be lying if I said, like I said, that I didn't wake up the morning after I had officially agreed to, to sign with the Mets and not say to myself, what the hell just happened? Uh, it was, <laughs> it was a little bit of a shock. That brave staff, you're known as golfers. And I got to see it my year with you guys. You guys were, it was on tour. And I loved going to the great tracks and Smolty had every hookup in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I'd tag along with you guys once in a while. But as a position player, I never liked to play uh, during, the, during the regular season because I had to play a game that night. But once in a while, if it was Marion, I, I might have to make an exception yep. and go out yep. there. I never did the Augusta thing. I got invited a couple times, and I thought later in my career, one day I'll do it. Uh, coming off the Masters, I saw, I saw an, art, uh, an interview with Tiger, and, and I, I played a few rounds with Tiger. We used to be, we, uh, used to be neighbors when I lived in Orlando. Uh, but he said one of his funnest rounds he ever played was with you, Smoltzy, and Maddox. That was his foursome. He said it was an epic foursome. I, I'm sure you've seen the interview. He said he shot 63 and, and lost money. Uh, if you had a dream foursome, Tom Glavin's dream foursome, what would it be? Um, you know, you get it. And, and I guess I've been asked that, and I'll keep it, um, 
you know, I'm not going to, I won't get into the political or, or religious side of it. I mean, right. I mean, obviously answer sometimes, oh, I'd love to play with Jesus one day. That would have been great, but I'll keep <laughs> it to golf. You know, um, yeah. if I was going to play golf, I would have, it would certainly start with Tiger, uh, probably Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer. Um, man, who would my fourth be? Um, you know, I could probably stay old school there as well and maybe have a, a Lee Trevino, um, something like that, you know, because, you know, you're going to get you're going to get the good and the serious with Tiger and Arnie and Jack maybe have somebody to lighten the load a little bit. And I heard I hear Trevino was an absolutely unbelievable storyteller and just so much fun to play with. So um, from a. And I know there are guys today that I would love to play with, whether it's, you know, JT or Spieth or, um, you know, guys like that. But uh, probably probably go old school across the board. Tiger, Arnie, Jack and Lee Trevino. That'd be that'd be pretty fun. Tommy, I appreciate you coming on. I'll see you in uh, I'm coming to Atlanta in about six weeks uh, to do a little. I don't know. I'm going to sit in the booth. And I'm going to watch it. Nice. Brave, All right. Braves called me and I said, you know, I only played there one year. They're like, yeah, we want to bring back <laughs> so, some of the old players for, for a weekend series. I think I'm up there uh, late in May. So uh, I'll definitely All come right. by and say hi. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Tom Glavin, 305 and 203 Hall of Famer. One of the best I ever faced. I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. And for all of us here at the Boone Podcast, thanks for joining us. See you next time.